As Bumper alluded to, we are going to be in 1 Peter tonight, still in chapter 1. I know many of you have been joking that we're now three weeks into this study and only two verses down, and uh, I'm not apologizing for that. Our goal is to dive deep into God's Word, and and really what we've seen is Peter has kind of laid out some core essentials of salvation, what it means to be saved in Uh, We've talked about election and predestination. We've talked about the salvific work of the triune God and the eternal plan of the Father. Remember that? The sanctification of the Spirit and and the blood of Christ and what that means to to be in relationship with God. And so we've talked a lot about how God saves us, and that'll still be a a prevalent theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. But as we move into verses 3, 4, and 5, yes, that's where we're going to be, 3, 4, and 5. We're doing three verses tonight, so this is a lot. I hope you're prepared to cover a lot of ground, which we're going very far. And uh, before we do that, we need, to, we need to understand the context for these believers that are scattered throughout Asia Minor uh, as as Peter kind of talks about each of them, right? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, We need to know what they're experiencing, what their context is in order for us to best connect with what Peter's trying to encourage them with. And the predominant experience for Christians under the Roman Empire's authority, who was in charge there in Asia Minor and pretty much the whole world at this point, uh, was persecution and suffering. They were going through hard times. Um, they were a minority people. I mean, it's, it's very right that Peter calls them exiles because they didn't belong and they felt that to the core of their beings. And um, at this time, there was an emperor by the name of Nero who was in charge. Uh, he, started, he came into power around 54 AD and continued on for a while. And he was not fond of Christians. And as a result, really the whole Roman Empire kind of used Christianity, people of the way, Jesus, followers of Jesus as their punching bags in in many different avenues. And most notably was in 64 AD when a massive fire broke out in Rome uh, that destroyed most of the city. Many believed in that time that it was Nero who actually instigated and had this fire started in order to make room for a new palace of his, which is what happened. And then he blamed it on Christians for starting the fire. This led to intense persecution and torture for those who publicly followed Christ. Under Nero, uh, they would be yanked out into the public streets and torn limb from limb by dogs. He would hang others up on the streets, covering them in tar, then burning them alive in order to provide light for the streets at night. And even outside of the physical torturing from the government, Christians were mocked and ostracized by their local communities. People were kicked from their families because they started to follow Jesus. It's pretty safe to say that Peter is writing to a pretty discouraged bunch of people because of their following of Jesus. And so what do you do if you're Peter? How do you encourage people that are going through a brutal deal because of their faith in the Messiah. Well, Peter's goal is to encourage believers to stand fast, not to cower, not to run away, not to forsake their faith, not to give up and say, ah, I don't know about this whole thing. I think I, I give up. I don't actually believe. No, no, no. He, he encourages them to stand fast 
while they endure suffering and distress in the present evil age. We talked about this in week one when we were outlining the whole purpose of this book, but one of the unique things that Peter does is talk to people that are in the now of their suffering and encourages them with future truth. Says, hey, I know you're going through really hard things right now, but I want to tell you some things about the future, not the now, but the future, that's going to encourage and help you in great, great ways. And I know that's kind of a hard thing to wrap our minds around, so um, I was thinking of a story, and our, our friends from Sky Ranch, they're here tonight, you'll hear an announcement from them, and uh, Russell, right here, we worked together, what was this, 2017, 2017, and uh, we worked at Sky Ranch, um, this place called Horn Creek, which is in Colorado, it's, you're kind of on the side of a mountain, it's a whole thing, altitude, hard to breathe, and you see this, the, the peak of this mountain called Horn Peak the entire summer, and everyone's always like, we gotta hike this thing at some point we got to hike this thing and so you stare at it you're like we're always going to hike this um, I had been there the summer before and so I hiked it the summer before and we had a guide that was trained to, to get you up to the top of the mountain and uh, it was great it was a wonderful experience and then our whole team we were like let's do it again and so we had it set up and I was talking to the guide that was going to take us but then the day before he said can't take you we're overstaffed or we're understaffed so I got to be doing these other things and I said, no big deal. I went last year. How hard, did it, how hard could it be to get up a mountain? And uh, long story short, very hard <laughs> to get up a mountain. And we also left at midnight. So it was pitch black because we wanted to see the sunrise from the top of the mountain. Really cool if it works out. Really cool if it works out. But uh, we've missed, like we didn't even make it to the, to the entrance of the, the trail. We had already gone four miles. And then we finally got back after four miles to the very front of the trail. And then we started going up, got lost a lot, got, you remember that like lion? We think, we think, we just started throwing rocks at this thing and we didn't know what was going on, but it was stalking us. And you know, it was brutal. There were many times we were like, should we just, should we just go back? Like, should we go home? But we didn't. We kept persevering. We made it to the top. And I remember our conversation throughout the whole thing that just for whatever reason got us through it was dinner that night. We were like, guys, we're going to be back in the dining hall. And I think it was a pizookie night. They made pizookies for us. And we're like, just remember, it's going to be nice. It's going to be worth it. Let's burn these calories. Get up this mountain. Get down it. A whole thing. And so for whatever reason, even though we were suffering in the now, we very much needed to be uh, encouraged that there was something waiting for us at the end of our struggling and our suffering physically that was just going to get us through that moment. And this is exactly what Peter's doing. In fact, look at verse 6. We're not even really covering this tonight. That'll be next week. But this kind of outlines this whole passage. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So he talks about the now. He said, man, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And there's reasons for those trials that we'll get to next week. But right now, I know you're suffering. But he gives a reason to rejoice. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice. Well, he said, what's the this? It's verses 3 through 5. So to get to the bottom of these verses... We need to go to understand the reason 
these believers can rejoice even though they are suffering on earth. Is this applicable for us today? Yeah, absolutely. We're exiles, we're sojourners, we're strangers on this earth. This is not our home. In fact, one, one pastor said, for the believer, earth is the closest to hell they'll ever get. But for the non-believer, hell is, or not hell, earth is the closest to heaven that they'll ever be. And so for us, this is the worst it's ever gonna be. Our life on earth. And, and we're not being covered in tar and burned on streets, okay? That's not our reality. Um, but I can bet that there's going to be an increasing hostility towards believers in our lifetime that we're all going to experience. And so we need to know how to combat that biblically. How do we endure? What, what do we do? And so this is exactly what Peter is going to address. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 just so you have the whole, the whole idea. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you might be like, well, sometimes we're the ones that are blessed, but how is it that God is blessed? How do we say blessed be to God? Uh, it means different things when, depending on who's the object and who is the giver, all right? So when man is saying blessed be God, it means Praise God. It means praise go to him. Blessed be him. His name is exalted and lifting up. We're saying, how great are you? Blessed be God the Father. But when God is blessing man, it means he is giving and lavishing and blessing mankind. So God is never praising man. Man is praising God. So when God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's meaning God is is lavishing and loving on mankind and that's why they're blessed god is blessed because he's worthy of praise so he says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ why well who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead we are saved we have been chosen by God, as we talked about in week one, uh, to, to a living hope, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. Now we've addressed this a little bit in previous weeks, but it bears repeating. There was nothing special about us that prompted God to save us. This room isn't just the most healthy, strong, uh, cutest pups in the litter that God said, well, I'm going to take them because they're clearly better than all the other pups in this litter. No, 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 no. That's not why God chose us. God chose us out of his pure mercy and compassion. It wasn't anything inherently great about us that made us worthy of saving. In fact, all of us were hostile to God, opposed to him. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Peter here is reminding us that God gets the glory and not us. 
It was according to his mercy, his compassion towards his creation, though rebelling against him. God is not done with him. He wants to save. So he has mercy on his people. And here's what he has done. He has caused us to be born again. Now, when he's talking about born again, he does not mean physically. This is not as Nicodemus joked in, no, I don't know if he's joking. Sarcastic maybe in John chapter three, his conversation with Jesus is what? Do you want me to climb back into my mother's womb? It's not what we're talking about when we say born again. This is not a physical reality, a second type of physical birth. He's speaking spiritually. That yes, we have been born into this world. We have physical life, but because of sin in the world, the wages of sin is death. We've now been separated from God. Ephesians 1, we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. So we should have a relationship with God that we were created for, but because of sin and rebellion, we've been separated from him. And we are dead in our sins. But it is God who makes us alive. He gives us new life through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That as Christ was raised from the dead, the same power gives spiritual life to us. That we can be reconciled and brought back into right relationship with God through our faith in what Jesus has done. We are resurrected. We are brought back to new life. And thus, we say we are born again. Now, can I tell you something as someone that has witnessed the birthing process twice? I've got to tell you something a little bit about birth. I'm not going to go too detailed here. That would be weird. But as one that has two kiddos, Asher and Miles, thank you for opening chip bags for them and keeping them alive. It means a lot when they're running around here. Uh, Asher and Miles had absolutely nothing to do with their birth. Do you realize that? Like they had absolutely, they can take no credit for what happened on their birthdays. They can take no credit for what happened before that. Birth happened to them, okay? They were passive, all right? Passive. They said, this just happened, okay? They just got shot out of there and they're crying. That's all, all right? They got spanked, they're crying. Shot out, bad, bad verbiage, sorry. But, <laughs> uh, but the point is, the Father is the initiator in producing life in us. The Father, God, He is the one that caused us to be born again. He is the active agent. We are merely passive participants in salvation, meaning we can take no credit for our salvation. We can take no credit. Before Asher and Miles even existed. Amy and I had a plan to bring them into this world. And then Amy did everything from there, okay? Uh, just some more. You did a great job. So, the same is true with spiritual birth, being born again. It was the work of God, not the work of man. We can't take any credit for it. It happened to us. He has caused us to be born again. And that is why we say, blessed be to God. Praise you, not me. 
Now that we have new life in Christ, Peter goes on to explain that we are born again with a living hope. With a living hope. You have been born again to a living hope that when you come out right there into uh, that, that labor and delivery room, you have something within you. It's not something that you went out and grabbed and acquired. It's something that you were born with, that upon your salvation, God has instilled something in you, and it's a living hope. Now, hope, in worldly senses, we use hope, is much different than biblical hope. It is much different. We kind of think about hope as though it's wishful thinking. Maybe it'll happen, maybe not. I don't know. I hope so. Is it going to rain on Friday and cancel the, the bonfire? I hope not, but we, it's already canceled. We'll postpone it. But uh, <laughs> we say, man, I hope not. Are the Cowboys going to win a Super Bowl in my lifetime? Probably not, but I hope so. <laughs> Too soon. I'm a Cowboys fan. I just, that's wishful thinking, is it not? As, I mean, Jerry Jones lives 40 more years. We're done for. Um, hope not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's wishful thinking. That's how we handle hope. Maybe. Maybe not. Who knows? Not me. That is not biblical hope. That is not the way that Bible uses hope. Hope in the Bible is a confident, unchanging expectation. Is a confident, unchanging expectation of something that will take place in the future. That is biblical hope. We don't say, man, I hope Jesus ends up coming back, as though he might not. He might just say, eh, I don't know about this whole thing. No, no, no. We don't, we don't view it as, as there's a chance these things might not happen. It is an expectation, a confident, it's unchanging that we have the biblical hope is an excited anticipation that God is going to make good on his word. God is going to be true to his word. And so we have full hope and trust that what God has promised will take place in the future. No fingers crossed. That's not what biblical hope is. It's trust in the facts that what God has said will come to pass. Fact. You can trust his word. The question now is, what is our hope in? What is the object of our hope? It's verse four. The object of our hope is to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Our hope is to obtain an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for all those who have been born again. Now, Peter uses this word inheritance here, and it is rich with meaning in the Jewish heritage. Almost every time inheritance is used in the Old Testament, it is referring to the promised land of Canaan. When they're in Egypt, when they're wandering through the wilderness journeys, God is reminding them of this inheritance that he had promised their people. That he was going to bring his chosen people into that land, that promised land. 
and that once they got through all of that junk, they were going to be in the land of Canaan. It's used the most in the book of Joshua as they're trying to clear out the land from all of these bad people like the Philistines. He's saying, this is your inheritance. This is your inheritance. It's promised that you're going to be here. And Peter knows this and now relates that inheritance to these Gentiles. Not to inherit Israel's promised land, but a heavenly one. That the hope for you and I is not Israel's land ultimately. The hope for all of us as believers is a heavenly inheritance that we're going to be with God forever. In fact, Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. We'll have it on the screen. And it talks about Old Testament saints and this hope and the faith that they had in trusting God to provide for them every step of the way. And they realize as they're going through it that it was more than just this hope that they had to get the land, but it was bigger than that. All these being the Old Testament saints, they died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen and welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Sound familiar? For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And, if, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country which they left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They have an inheritance. When we are born again, we are born into an inheritance, a promise that we will get to dwell with God forever and ever and ever in heaven. That's our inheritance. Might there be other things alongside of that? Maybe. But the very core of what God has promised us for those that believe is that we get to be with him in heaven forever and share in all the blessings of God. That is what we inherit because we have been born again into the family of God. Welcome to the family. This is going to be yours forever, I promise. And this hope that we have inside of us is a living hope. You notice that? It's a living hope, meaning it is something that transcends this world. The hope of this world is empty. It's vain. It sounds good. It looks good at the beginning, but it never satisfies. It never fulfills. It never makes good on its word. It's empty hopes. It's hope the Cowboys win in our lifetime kind of hopes, right? It's empty. It's vain. <sighs> Sorry. It's like therapy. <laughs> It'll always fall flat. That's what the hope of the world does. But the hope of the believer is living, meaning it has a divine source. It has a divine source. Remember when uh, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well? And they're having this whole back and forth about who should get who water, and she's all over the place. And he's like, I'm trying to talk about something very specific. And he gets to this point where he starts talking about living water. 
not this water that you're going to have to keep going back to the well over and over and over and over again. Well, for a very short amount of time, it'll satisfy you, make you feel good, but then you're going to have to go back to that well again because it's water of this world. He's saying, no, I'm talking about living water that can quench your spiritual thirst forever, where you will never run dry. What Jesus is talking about here, this life, this living hope that Jesus offers is spiritual and it's everlasting. That it is going to continue and carry us through the rest of our lives. One translation calls it the hope that lives on. It will live on and there will be nothing that can quench it in a good way. It's a living hope. Is that good news? Yeah, that's pretty good news. That's a great inheritance that we have. That's an amazing thing to be born into. An amazing thing to look forward to. But it begs the question, can something like that be lost? Can our salvation, can our inheritance, this promise that we have to be with God forever, is that something that we can mess up? Is that something that we can lose or can be snatched away from us? Great Great question. Peter saw it coming 2,000 years ago. He says, This inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Our inheritance is imperishable. Meaning, this inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us is not going to start rotting. It's not going to expire. You ever left milk in the fridge too long? Eesh. You open that thing up and it just pungent, hits you right in the nostrils. That thing gets rotten. It expires. It's not good anymore. Why? Because it's perishable. It's perishable. It's not, it's not going to last. Well, guess what? Your inheritance is never going to expire. You're never going to open it. You're not going to get into heaven. And God's like, ooh, yeah, it's fired. Sorry. <laughs> Perishable goods these days. No, it's not what's going to happen. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's undefiled, meaning it can't be stained by sin. In the Old Testament, if someone touched something that they weren't supposed to, like a, like a dead animal, or remember Samson, right? Then they were considered unclean, ceremonially Unclean, not just physically, like this is gross, go, go take a bath, but ceremonially, spiritually unclean, that they were considered spiritually unclean and they were unfit to come before God in worship until they were cleansed. This was the Old Testament reality that they would be defiled by sin, that they would have all of these uh, diseases like leprosy where they thought it was because of sin in somebody's life that they would become defiled and then they were unfit to come before God and worship and to offer sacrifices. They would get defiled. And so these people, they know this reality and they're saying, wait, you're telling my, my inheritance. This promise that I get to be with God is undefiled? It can't be stained by sin? It's exactly what Peter is saying. Because when Jesus took our place on the cross and resurrected from the dead, he paid for the penalty of our sin. 
He conquered sin and death. And so we're now freed from the penalty of sin. We're freed from the power of sin. And that's big news for us. Because even when we sin in our day-to-day, and yeah, I know we still do it. We don't want to, but we still do it. But even when we do, our future inheritance with God is undefiled. It's not been stained by our sin. It isn't touched by evil. So let me put it clearly. Your salvation is sin-proof. It's fail-proof. There's nothing that you can do to mess it up. Your reservation in heaven, your name in the book of life is not going to be taken away from you when you sin on earth. Once you are saved, you're always saved. You cannot lose your salvation. And I hold such a strong confidence in in the security of my salvation and the security that you have in your salvation. Let me be clear. Not because I think so highly of myself or I think so highly in my ability to persevere through this life. No, not at all. My confidence is verse 5. It is you who are protected by the power of God. We are protected by the power of God through faith that we trust God and his provision and his character and his power to carry us, to preserve us through the rest of our lives through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's pop quiz. We talked about three aspects of sanctification last week. We talked about justification, which is our initial sanctification. We talked about progressive sanctification that happens through our life. And then we talked about glorification that happens when we die. Which of these three is Peter talking about? A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Glorification. I heard some whispers. Glory, glory, glory. (laughs) Yeah, it's glorification. That our salvation is already reserved. It's already there. It's already happened. But in the last time, whether Christ returns or we die and go to him, our salvation is going to be revealed, that it's going to be completed ultimately. That's good news. It's going to happen because it's protected. It's guarded by God by his power this protection comes in two forms number one God is protecting believers from external threats something that is outside of of the castle of the kingdom of God something that would steal it out like a uh, a wolf would try and steal a sheep from their pen or or a thief would try and get in there saying no 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 With Jesus as your shepherd, there's no external threats that are going to pull you out of there. Satan will not be able to pull us away from salvation. In the second form, God is also keeping believers from stumbling out, from escaping. So nobody on the outside will be able to pull us out, but also there's nobody on the inside that is in the family of God that will be able to stumble out of salvation. They will not be able to stumble and and screw themselves up so bad that they're now outside of the camp. Why? Not because I have faith in us to never screw it up so bad, but because God is guarding us. He is carrying us to the finish line. John 10, 
It's up on the screen. Is Jesus talking. This is when he says, I'm the good shepherd. That's this whole passage. It's amazing. This is what he says. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He is guarding our salvation, protecting us from the moment we are born again to the last time when our salvation will be revealed. No one can snatch you out of his hands. He is more powerful. He is more capable to guard than anyone else. And that's really good news for us. Now, how do we apply this? I think a couple of ways. I think first is understanding that we can endure any trials and tribulations on this earth because God has guaranteed our salvation. I know in this life, I'm just passing through. And so no matter how hard it gets, no matter how intense this, this hurt is, no matter how much I'm let down and suffering because of what is going on in my life, the persecution that I have for a Christian or because life in this sin-cursed world is just brutal sometimes, I know I have a mentality in my life that, that I'm going to see it through, that God is going to carry me to the end and that that when I die or when he comes, I have an inheritance with him that is guaranteed that I get to be with God forever and ever and ever and there's no one that can pull me away from that. And so when we were on that mountain just suffering and lost because it was dark, we could look around with a little bit of a smirk on our face and saying, hey, can't wait for those bazookies. It's gonna be good. Can't wait to be back there. No matter what goes on from us getting up to the top of that peak, down to the bottom, I know what's in store for us when we get home. And so I can go through this whole mountain with just a little bit of a smirk because I know what's coming after this. That is what holds us. That is what encourages us to stand fast, to weather the storm of this life because we know how it ends and we know where we're gonna be. This is the mentality that we need. This is the mentality of Paul as he's encouraging the Corinthians in his second letter. He, he just puts it together really well. And he says this. Ah, oh, tough timing. I tried. It's going to be on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, you've heard it before. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're the things of this world, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's living hope. 
So no matter what's going on in my life, isn't it funny? I mean, think about Paul's life. This man was literally beaten to death, was just in a heap outside of some town that ran him out and beat him to death. And then God brought him back to life. He got back up and he says, all right, let's keep preaching. I mean, he got whipped and beaten and mocked and scorned, starving, all kinds of things. And what does he call it? Light momentary affliction. It's light and it's only for a moment. Oh, if all of us would just carry that mentality. If all of us would just carry that and say, whatever's going on in my life, it's light and it's momentary. Yeah, it hurts. It's an affliction. It's not ideal. But in comparison to the eternal weight of glory prepared for us, it's a blip on the radar. That's what going through life as a believer has when you embrace the living hope. When you embrace this inheritance that is reserved for us. We can endure any trials. We can endure any tribulations on this earth because we know what's coming next. Let me pray. Father, how kind are you to lay this out for us in the scriptures? To take a man like Peter, who also endured his fair share of suffering and persecution, who was a man by all accounts that we know was crucified upside down. And for him to know what was coming. This hope that he has and this inheritance that, we, that he has that is stored up for him that he knows he's gonna be with you forever and ever and ever. And that no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what tribulations that we're experiencing in this life, we know that we get to be with you forever. And so God, I pray that you would make all of us, that you would just create in us a resolve and a resiliency that no matter what is going on our, in our lives, no matter how rocky the waves, we just, we would just look ahead. We would remind ourselves of what's, what's guaranteed for us, that what we have inherited because we are born again that when we go home, our true home, it's going to be good. It's going to be life with you. And because I know that, I can get through anything on this life. I could be bold with my faith. I don't have to be afraid of what people might think. I don't have to be afraid of what people might say if I might lose friendships or be cut off from people or lose a promotion, a job, or whatever it may be. I don't have to be afraid for being known by you. Because in the end, knowing you and being known by you is better than anything this world has to offer. God, we praise you. We look to you. You are our hope. You are our righteousness and our only boast. And we proclaim your name now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.